Well, this morning we come once again, as we do every year on the first Sunday of Lent, to the temptation of Christ. And once more this week, preachers around the world stared at their Bibles and tried to think of something new to say about it. It's not always easy, and there are a lot of passages like that. Yet somehow it seems that there's always something that strikes us as new or unusual. Even in this well-known and well-worn passage, we find things that are new. It's an unusual passage. We see Jesus and Satan locked in combat, battling in an environment that is at once familiar and also strange. All of us are familiar with temptation, but intense spiritual warfare on this scale may be much more unusual to us. We find Jesus here tempted, being tested. That's what the word temptation means. One early Christian writer wrote about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He said this, We do not have a high priest, he's speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, a different kind of high priest, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted like us and yet without sin. Tempted, but not with sin. Now clearly being tempted is not committing sin. How we respond to temptation may or may not result in sin. But I'm struck by what Hebrews says, that Jesus was tempted like we are. And I look at these temptations and I see what strikes me as unusual. The first temptation to turn stones into bread. Now remember what I read to you from the book of Hebrews. Jesus was tempted like we are. Now I don't know about you, but I've never really been tempted to turn stones into bread. Really? It's never crossed my mind. Anyone here ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread? Maybe you see a nice-looking rock and you think, man, that'd make a good piece of bread. And then what would you do? I don't even know. You would stare at it really hard and think about bread. I don't even know how, to, how I would begin. It's never crossed my mind. And even if somehow we could do such a thing, say we put a rock into an atomic super collider and we shot bread electrons at it or something. I don't know what I'm even talking about. And somehow we were able to transmogrify the rock into bread say we did, would that be a sin anyway? If I talked to Father Alex and I was really excited and I said, Father Alex, I found out a way without using magic or witchcraft or anything weird, but I found a way to turn stones into bread. I've solved the problem of world hunger. I doubt his response would be, well, as your priest, I need to warn you that you're walking a dangerous path here. (laughs) So Jesus is tempted like I am, I'm told, yet I've never even thought about turning stone into bread. And even if I did, I'm not sure what would be so sinful about it. And then Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. I've seen it. It wasn't until I went to Jerusalem and learned about it. I always thought the pinnacle of the temple was the highest point on the temple building. But actually the pinnacle of the temple is, the, is on the temple mount. It's on the southeast corner of the Temple Mound. It overlooks the Valley of Kidron. And the Temple Mound, which is still there today, uh, when Jesus' time was a 450-foot drop from that point on the mount down to the ground below. The valley has since been filled in, uh, mostly with rocks from the temple itself when it was torn apart and, and pushed over the, the mound. Um, but it's still... It's a ladybug, isn't that sweet? Don't want anything to happen to it. I might start pounding the pulpit. (laughs) 
Uh, it's been filled in. It's only a 140-foot drop now. But, but I've sat below it. It was, it was the spot up, all that way up above, 45 stories up above the ground. It was the place where the... In fact, there's an inscription on, on the rock right there. It says, the place of trumpeting. Because that's where the priests would go and blow the chauffeur horns at various times of the day. Because that was right over the city and then down into the, into the whole city of Jerusalem. Now, I've never been tempted to jump off a 450-foot wall. With my approach to heights, you'd have a hard time getting me within 10 feet of the edge, to be honest with you, let alone jump off. Yet I'm told that Jesus is tempted just like we are, just like I am, but I'm not seeing it. Now, I suppose that if I did jump off a 450-foot wall, that would be foolish, okay, and I suppose in that sense, sinful. But now, we're not talking about me jumping off the pinnacle of the mount, we're talking about Jesus, And Satan quotes Jesus a line from the Psalms, that the Messiah would be guarded by angels. It's from Psalm 91. We, in fact, read it this morning in our psalm. It's a psalm about protection for the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and if he jumped off the pinnacle of the mount, and if angels rescued him, and if he didn't hit the stones, what in the world would be sinful about that? How could it possibly be sinful for Jesus to fulfill a messianic prophecy? And then the third temptation, to rule the world. Now I confess, I wouldn't mind being the the king of a pleasant little country someplace, someplace warm, where I was surrounded by other kings who were all my best friends so we'd never go to war. And my queen would ride her mighty steed across the countryside and be saluted as she rides by and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I I confess I wouldn't mind that. But to be the ruler of the world? I value my weekends too much for that. I don't want that kind of responsibility. I don't want that kind of pressure. But even if I did rule the world, why would that be a sin? Really? And I look at these specific temptations and I think to myself, I'm really not tempted by these things. The specific particular temptations here really don't speak to me. So what am I missing? Well, so far I'm missing one of the most important things about Bible reading. What are the three most important things about Bible reading? Location, location, location. Thank goodness someone remembers. Same thing as real estate. Location, location, location. Location in Scripture, the scriptural context, the biblical context, what comes first and what comes afterwards. Location in place, the cultural context, that includes economy and the political situation and legal situation, all that kind of stuff. And then the location in time, the historical context, what happened before, what time period are we in. Now, of course, you don't need to be an expert in all these kind of areas to read the Bible. Don't, Don't get me wrong at all. Uh, You don't need to be an expert because the most important is the most obvious. And that's the location in Scripture, what comes before and what comes after. Our Scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4. It's obvious what comes before Luke chapter 4, and that's Luke chapter 3. And what happens in Luke chapter 3? Jesus goes down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is preaching a message of salvation and offering uh, baptism. And Jesus is baptized, and then immediately he's tested Let's look at what Jesus is being tested with. Jesus goes to the Jordan River. He's baptized. 
And do you remember what happens when Jesus is baptized? The heavens roll open, and the voice of God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and one of the first words that Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then God himself has just said, This is my beloved Son, and Satan says, Well, if you are... I've often read them as a challenge to Jesus. The Satan is saying, prove you're the Son of God by doing this or doing that. But I think that misses the point. Jesus is say, Satan is saying, if you are the Son of God, then get what you deserve. If you are the Son of God, then at least you deserve food. You have the power to turn stones into food, so take what you deserve. After all, what kind of father gives a son nothing but stones when the son is hungry? You might recognize that line from one of Jesus' parable, later parables. I wonder if he was thinking about this situation. Or if you are the son of God, you deserve recognition. You deserve awe and wonder. You deserve fame. And then the blunt offer of the world is yours. Take it. Take the entire universe now without the waiting, without the pain. Take your inheritance from your father now. That's echoed in a later parable, too. Take what you deserve. You deserve the pleasantries of life, so take food. You deserve fame and fortune, so seize them. The whole world is your father's, so take what is your inheritance. Take what you deserve and take it now. Don't wait on your father's plan. Don't you know that involves death? Take what you deserve now and to hell with what God wants. I mean, since you are the Son of God, I mean, you are, aren't you? If you were the Son of God, you'd get what you deserve. So take it. And we realize that this is what Jesus is tempted with. Not bread, or glory, or riches, or power, but tempted with getting what he deserves without going through with God's plan. And we realize that this temptation does not end with verse 13 of Luke 4, but that Jesus wrestles with this temptation his entire life. We sometimes speak of the temptation of Christ as if this is his only temptation. 40-day test, he passes it, and so no more need for temptation. But Jesus wrestles with this temptation his entire life. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll cry out to his father, take this cup from me. And then the very next day, the thief on the cross turns to him and says, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the crowd gathered at the cross picks up the taunt and mocks Jesus, saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. There's a shortcut. If you are the Son of God, you deserve to be believed in and worshipped. Come down from the cross and then we'll worship you. There's a shortcut. Jesus can get what he deserves by simply coming down from the cross. In fact, it's quite possible that the last words Jesus hears before his death is that mockery. If you are the Son of God, then be treated the way you deserve. Take what you deserve now. He dies with that first taunt of Satan repeating in his ears, If you are the Son of God. But he dies with the same response in his mind, if not on his lips, that he made in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And I begin to see how Jesus was tempted like I am. You know, a common comment when talking about the temptation of Jesus is this. You've probably heard it before. Someone might say, uh, how could Jesus have been tempted like I am? After all, he's the son of God. 
I've probably said that myself. But now I see that Jesus can be tempted like I am because he is the Son of God. In fact, his temptation is stronger than mine because he has a higher claim than I do. And that claim is to get what I deserve regardless of God's plan. As the Son of God, Jesus clearly has a higher claim to getting what he deserves than I do. And if the same temptation followed Jesus all the way to his dying breath, I find that it follows me every day as well. It's the desire to turn every opportunity into what's best for me. To take every new day as a day to get more of what I deserve. To push God's will aside in favor of what's best for me. Not thy will, but mine be done, I say too often. Now learn what temptation is all about. The point of temptation is not to simply get me to fall in a particular area of my life. Of course, that's going to happen if I give in temptation. Of course it is. But the point of temptation is to distract me from doing what God's called me to do. Dealing with temptation is more than a matter of avoiding this or that particular sin, but of turning away from God's plan and seeking the thing that will get me what I really deserve. Giving in to temptation will provide a shortcut to getting what I want by cutting God out of the picture altogether. And as I give in to temptation piece by piece, I turn away from what God's plan is and I substitute my plan for it. And piece by piece, I walk away from God. And that's the big battle. Not the little battle over this or that temptation, but the big battle over God's plan and my role in it. And in fact, Jesus makes this clear in his response to Satan. Let's take the first temptation. Satan says, if you are the son of God, surely you deserve food, so turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response at first seems pretty weak, actually. Jesus says, quoting Deuteronomy 8, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And at first, this doesn't seem very strong. Jesus says, I need both bread and God's word to live. Well, Satan might respond, well, you just said it. You need bread. You need bread and God's word to live. So, you need bread, turn these stones to bread. But Jesus says, I do not only need bread, I need God's word as well. And if I turn away from God's word and God's plan to seek what I deserve, I'll lose communion with God. I'll lose communication with God. And I need that as much as I need bread. This Holy Lent, yes, do pay attention to particular temptations to particular sins. I'm not telling you not to. But focus on what lies behind those temptations, that desire to get what you deserve at any cost, even the cost of avoiding God's plan. Deal with that desire as much as those temptations to particular sins, and you'll stay in touch with God. You'll stay in communication with God, and you need that as much as you need bread. In Jesus' name, amen.